Triathlon Show 310. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Russ Barber. Russ is the British Triathlon Swim Coach at the Leeds Triathlon Centre, where his sessions are frequented by athletes like Olympic gold medalists George Taylor-Brown and Jess Learmont. And in this episode, we discuss his view on swim training for triathletes, how best to develop technique and fitness specific to triathlon, example weeks, example sessions, and a lot more. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Senate that create the Senate Indoor Swim Trainer, which is a training tool that you can use at home allowing you to improve your swim technique your power and stamina and save time and stay consistent consistency is super important but it is very tough sometimes to find the time to get to the pool when you have to include a a commute and changing and all of that so to have a time efficient option to complement your pool and open water swimming that you can do at home in a shorter amount of time even just 15 20 minutes can get you an effective workout that is an an invaluable thing to have in addition you can use the senate swim trainer for specialized training like swim bike brick workouts and it allows you to work on perfect core activation and streamline with the help of the built-in instability element of the swim bench the Senate Swim Trainer also does not take up a lot of space. It is very affordable and even more so with a 20% discount code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, as well as prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. Today I want to talk about Roka's range of wetsuits and why they are such a fantastic option if you are in the market for a wetsuit, whether it's a new one or an upgrade on one you're currently using. First, Roka have a wide range of wetsuits from the entry-level Maverick that is still extremely high quality all the way up to the flagship model, the Maverick X2. All of Roka's wetsuits come with a patented arms-up technology which maximizes shoulder mobility, which can otherwise be quite restricted and result in less efficient and slower swimming if you are uh, restricted in your shoulder mobility. Roka's wetsuits also have a patented buoyancy profile or actually several different patented buoyancy profiles for the fastest possible body position in the water. And if you are somebody that are struggling with that, then the MX Max buoyancy wetsuit is the most buoyant wetsuit of all of them so that's worth checking out there are a ton of other fantastic features in Roka's wetsuits like the exoskeleton in the x2 wetsuit that maximizes how speed maximizes speed and propulsion uh, by increasing the connectivity between your hips and shoulders you can read all the details on roka.com and you can get 20% off your entire Roka order on roka.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into the interview with Russ Barber Welcome to that triathlon show, Russ. How are you doing? I'm good, good. It's nice to be invited on. How are you? I'm good as well. Thank you. And uh, yeah, it's uh, very nice to have you. Uh, looking forward to getting into some uh, triathlon swimming discussions. But before we do that, can you just introduce yourself to the audience and uh, uh, tell us a bit more about your background? Yeah, well, my name is Russ Barber. I'm the uh, performance swim coach for the Leeds Triathlon Centre. So I'm employed by the British Triathlon Federation to work with the the athletes there at uh, the Leeds 
triathlon centre. Um, I haven't got a background in triathlon really. Uh, I did a few sprint triathlons when I was a when I was a young man, you know, about four hundred years ago. Um, but um, uh, my background is in is in performance swimming. Um, I've been working uh, within swimming since nineteen ninety, um, and involved, you know, right from learn to swim right through to the last four Olympics, having athletes at the last four Olympics, and uh, yeah, so it's been an interesting journey. And um, last year during the pandemic, uh, unfortunately, I had to take redundancy from my role in Sheffield in, in England and uh, but luckily uh, triathlon was looking for a, a, a swim specialist and uh, so I was employed pretty pretty much uh, shortly after that so it's been a it's been a whirlwind of uh, a mind expansion for the last for the last year or so <laughs> yeah uh, I can imagine and uh, yeah can you talk, talk us a little bit more about what the setup is like with uh, you now being at the the performance center in Leeds uh, what what does a typical sort of week look like for you working there what is the squad like and who, who are you working with and so on yeah yeah well it's um, the, the Leeds triathlon center is actually a, a partnership between the two universities in Leeds and British the British Triathlon Federation and Leeds City Council. And they work together, you know, providing uh, facilities and um, support for the, for the best triathletes in, in the area. Um, it's, it's, it, uh, it's, it's been on the working you know, well for a good 10, 12 years. I think, uh, you know, before I came along, there's been a lot of success already. Obviously the, the Brownlee brothers and, and uh, many other athletes that we could mention uh, when it was uh, being controlled by Malcolm Brown and his team up until 2017. Um, and then pretty much what we do on a day-to-day basis, um, there's a head coach there, which is Reese Davey. He's uh, Vicky Holland's personal coach, and he was the head coach at, at the Bath Centre for a number of years, and he's just been employed as the head coach now at Leeds, which is fantastic. And the development coach there is Sinan Osman that works with the um, the up-and-coming athletes, the, the ones that have started university 18 and works with them for two or three years, getting ready for the performance program. And then there's uh, a run-specific coach, Ian Mitchell, that's been there for a number of years that does a fantastic job with the guys there. And then I'm the swim specialist. And then alongside of that, there we've in, in Britain, for those that don't know, there's the, or in England certainly, there's the Eng- English Institute of Sport, which is um, an organisation set up by the government to provide services for the best athletes in the country. And we have support from those guys on SNC and physio and psych and nutrition, medical, that type of thing. Obviously, those guys are not full time in Leeds, but we have access them to them two or three days a week. So that's so that's pretty much the way it works on a on a day to day basis at Leeds. And the one thing that some people don't realise is we're, we're lucky, we're very very lucky in that the partnership was able to um, develop a, a triathlon centre in in Leeds, an actual building that uh, that it's actually called the Brownlee Centre. And there's a, a cycling track there that obviously doubles up as a running track as well. And there's a there's a gym in there and a, a big meeting room so that we can have meetings with the athletes and coaches meetings and 
and you know where there's physio rooms and doctors rooms and, and things like that so so we're very lucky to have all that partnership and, and those facilities at hand that's really cool uh when when it comes to the swimming specifically uh what what is the squad set up like do you run uh one session each day and and then depending on the athlete they might or might not show up or or do they all kind of follow a centralized program when it comes to swimming can you can you elaborate a bit on that part yeah i would say that probably 85 percent of of what i do with the swim group is is centralized you know where we all pretty much do a similar thing um and and the basis of the standard program is is five two-hour sessions a week so we train from um half past seven in the morning till half past nine in the morning um monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday um, there's also three additional sessions should we need it so so anybody that needs additional training um you know for or, or they're, they're injured on the um, biking and running and need to um, get the mileage in we've also got three additional sessions so if somebody wanted to they could train up to eight sessions a week um within the within the center and uh what how many athletes are, are in your squad is it are we just talking about the uh the athletes on the olympic program or high performance program or is it also including junior and uh under 23 athletes uh so so who will show up at the sessions basically yeah so it's a mixture of both so so we have um, the world-class athletes in the squad as well so so we've got um um georgia taylor brown we've got jess Liam Lomp, we've got sam dickinson we've got um, non Stanford, we've got Vicky Holland. You know, we've got that group um, of athletes there, um, but also we also have a group of eight to ten developing athletes that are perhaps at European Cup level, um, and you know, a couple of them are starting to get into the World Series level, and so in total, we've got sixteen athletes in the group half of which are, are what you'd class as world-class and, and the other half are, are, are the step below that. But we all train together and, and uh, support each other and, and push each other on a day-to-day basis. Mm, great. And uh, and when you say that 85% is centralized, what what is the 15% that is not, not centralized? Is that what you mentioned already with some athletes being able to do more swimming if they need to? Yeah, so, so if anybody wants to do more sessions that they can do. Um, so, for example, Sam in the group just recently is is laid off uh, on his his running training because he, he had a niggle in his foot and so he went up to 45,000 meters for two or three weeks and so he was accessing those additional sessions um but also you know there are some of the athletes that prefer to stick to four swim sessions you know when they're really pushing the the biking and the running hard and so you know most of the athletes most of the time will do the five two-hour sessions so between eight and ten hours a week and then occasionally some athletes will will step it up and and do more and occasionally do less um and also within that group we've got some of the developing athletes that perhaps are not as physically strong um or they're not as technically um ready for the hard training as some of the better athletes and so those guys won't always do exactly the same session as the as the world class athletes. You know, they may focus more on some specific strength work or specific power work or 
or that type of thing, you know. So, so generally speaking, most of the time, most of the athletes will do the, the five to hour sessions and do a similar session to each other. But we have got some variety in there as and when we need it. Mm. And and if so, for somebody who does the five two hour sessions, mm. uh, the world class athletes when they do it uh, in the the regular way, uh, shall we say, what sort of distances are we talking about on a weekly basis then? Yeah, probably between I would say probably between twenty five and thirty two thousand a week kilometers a week, something right. in, in that sort of region. So so most sessions are, are probably between five thousand and six and a half thousand kilometers um on a but obviously during the you know if a heavy competition period that'd be significantly less you know we may be only be doing 20 22 23,000 um whereas as we're, we're coming into a more you know once we get Abu Dhabi um out of the way and the winter training can can get underway properly um we'll probably up, up the more near 35,000 a week on those five sessions Mm, yeah. Um, so let's let's move on and uh, discuss generally around your your training and coaching philosophy when it comes to to swimming and and specifically triathlon swimming. Uh, yeah. Can can you just start from from there and then we can have some interesting follow up discussions? I think. Yeah. Sure. Um, well, it's interesting because, like I said in the intro, I'm not a hugely experienced triathlon coach. You know, I'm aware of it and I've always been a fan of it and. And when I was a, a young coach, and a, 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 just after I retired from swimming, I did a little bit of triathlon. And so I haven't got a huge amount of experience um, in triathlon. And so this last kind of six to nine months has been a real learning experience for me, and I've, and I've loved every minute of it. But I think um, there are some real crossovers that I, I find that are, that are relative to, to all sports, you know, regardless of whether it's just swimming or whether it's a swimming section in triathlon you know i think there there are some some correlations between the two i mean you know one so one of my first things that i look for all the time is is the kind of mindset and the culture that there is within the group you know so so on my first few sessions i wasn't really looking too much at the swimming side of things i was i was looking more towards you know, the behaviours of the athletes and how they work together and, you know, how ready they were to train and their mindset and their attitude and that type of thing. And so I think it's a something that, you know, we all really need to look at uh, when we're, we're coaching our groups. You know, you know, there needs to be a real mindset of, and a real culture of professionalism and of progression and being prepared to experiment before you worry about the hard work, if you understand what I mean, hmm. you know, because, you know, the one thing that I've learned from triathlon is that the majority of the athletes don't have a problem with working hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're very, very, very hard workers. And so, you know, the, the, you know, the first thing that I wanted to do was to make sure that, so that we had that culture of progression and experimentation and being prepared to try things and, and that type of thing. So, so that's always the first thing on my philosophy when I, when I, when I look at a, situation um before we get on to the technical stuff you know and so you know with regard to the technical stuff the first thing that i was looking at was was their athletic posture and their aquatic posture and and making sure that we had straight lines and we had bodies that that could move through the water in a smooth way and um 
And again, I think that was a little bit of a shock, <laughs> a shock to the system with some of the triathletes because, you know, the, the postures that that you guys need on your bike and when you're running are, are often very, very different to, to what we as swimming coaches want. You know, we want, you know, we want straight lines uh, through the back. We want very, very um, dynamic and mobile scapulars. You know, we want dynamic and mobile hips and lower backs and that type of thing. And so, and so I had to really start addressing those things straight away. Uh, how how do you specifically address those? Do you have a couple of cues or drills that that work to address those? Yeah, things? you know, I mean, very very simple things to be honest with you. You know, stuff like you know, just on dry land before before we get in the water, and uh, making sure that the the athletes can you know, lay flat on the back and and uh, reduce the the lordosis at the bottom of the back. You know, try and get it as as flat as possible, and you know. Um, switch on the muscles and tensing the muscles um, and being dynamic with the muscles in that position as well you know because I mean one thing that I found is that when I spoke to the athletes about switching the core muscles on and and you know pulling the the, the belly buttons into the spines and trying to get a, a real nice flat line along the back a lot of them was holding the breath You know, and obviously we can't do that when we're swimming, you know, so it's being able to to separate the two, you know, being able to switch on those muscles that allow you to have an aquatic posture, but also relaxing the muscles that don't need to be tensed and don't need to be toned, you know, to be able to breathe properly and, and still have good um, good mobility and that type of thing. So a real lot of it was just just on the dry land before we got into the pool you know, just learning to activate the muscles that need to be activated and then switching them on when we got in the water. Um, so, so that was the, the posture thing. And then, and then certainly in the first, this first period of time that I've been working with the athletes is we've, we've had a real focus on efficiency of technique and making sure that um, they understand that going faster is not just whipping their arms around as fast as they can go, you know. Mm. It's it's all about being able to go through the gears of speed, but retain efficiency and uh, and also have a number of tools in the that they can use depending on the situation that they're in. You know, and so I want I want the athletes to be able to have a, an effective sprint at the start of the race. I want them to have an effective speed, you know, up to the first boy. I want them to have effective back end speed, you know, for the back end of the race because those are three very different paces, you know, if you monitor them, uh, and also for them to be efficient uh, when they're executing the drills, so they become competent at training and competent at. So it's not just up and down, up and down, five, six thousand meters, you know. So it was just basically trying to to bring a level of efficiency, uh, a level of um, awareness of distance per stroke and stroke rate and that type of thing that I think that they're probably very, very good at on the bike and the running, but I didn't feel was there in the pool. And with the efficiency part then, uh, what would be a couple of examples of how you work on on that? Uh, would it be, for example, well, you, you tell me, I'm not going to lead you. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just little things, you know, that, that I, I felt that a real lot of the training that was going on was for the average triathlete that was just in the pack. 
you know, so, you know, short strokes, protecting the front of the stroke, you know, really early catch, no leg kick, uh, very little body rotation. You know, that was kind of the thing I was seeing on a day-to-day basis. Um, and my, my attitude coming in is, well, what happens, though, if you are better than that? And what happens if you find yourself out of the pack? And what happens if you want to be on the front pack and you've got clean water? What happens if you're at the front? You know, because that's got to be my aim, right, as a swimming coach. And so I wanted to teach them about long vessel and a longer front end and not rushing into catch and making sure that the back of the stroke is where the real power comes from, um, linked with the rotation in the hips, and also making sure that as and when they could bring a leg kick in and use it as a change of pace if they wanted to find position or if they needed to you know, get on somebody's feet or get on someone's hips or, or get away from somebody or in the, you know, in the, uh, on the exit, you know, uh, of the, of the swim section, making sure that they're getting a good position into T1, you know. So I think it was just an introduction or a reminder to the athletes about those skills so that it just, so they've got a, a toolkit that they can use of skills rather than just the, the kind of standard um, mid-pack kind of short stroke, no rotation, no leg kick type of thing. You know, that seems to be quite that, that seems to be the norm and uh, you definitely have athletes in that in that group that will be out front and and be uh, be pushing the pace in the swim as we have seen yeah, uh, yeah absolutely and, the and last few seasons yeah exactly you know and, and so you know it's really nice to to come to come to back to leeds because i started out as a young swimming coach in leeds actually and the brownlee brothers and jess Learmont were in my group as a as a young swimming coach and so it was really nice to to come back to and 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 Jess was you know still swimming there and, and the Brownlee guys are still training obviously but they're in a different group to the to the Leeds high performance center and um so it was really nice to see that um and but so so obviously Jess has has got a reputation there as as leading out races and um being the person that stretches out and and that type of thing And so what I wanted to do with her was to be able to obviously maintain that position, but with more efficiency. So she doesn't use as much energy. So, you know, to reduce a stroke rate, increase the distance per stroke. And then with the other athletes that perhaps are not used to leading out, you know, to give them the skills and the swim speed to be able to get on front pack um, if they choose to. You know, that was a, a real big gain that we was able to get with, with Georgia to make sure that she could be right there on on front pack at, at Tokyo. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's all really interesting. And then uh, continuing on with, with the coaching philosophy still in a bit, what about if we um, talk about a bit more on the, I guess, physiological or metabolic side in terms of yeah. what sort of uh, what sort of sessions you're, you're working with and then how you distribute kind of more standard endurance work or strength work and technique work with the harder yeah. sessions how, how do you view that well it's interesting because i think um you know if you were to look at an endurance athlete uh, or an endurance swimmer you know somebody that would focus on 1500 800 1500 open water those type of events because they do very little training outside of the pool um you know we're needing to get 
I mean, minimum of 60,000 a week, probably up 78 to 90,000 a week in the pool and, and, and try and get all the low level aerobic swimming or the, the anaerobic threshold type swimming, the VO2 max type swimming, any speed swimming that they may do would all have to come from pool work, which is why they have to do so many hours swimming. Um, Whereas obviously within triathlon, you're getting so much aerobic development and anaerobic threshold work um, outside of the pool that um, I, I don't feel that that needs to be as big a focus on the swimming. Now, obviously it'd be different for 70.3 and for Ironman, but certainly when you look at you know super sprint, sprint and Olympic distance, you know how much aerobic and anaerobic threshold training do we actually need given the fact that certainly on super sprint and sprint you're probably not using that energy system you know you're certainly going to be in this sprint the more elactic and vo2 max energy systems um and then for the uh, olympic distance obviously you're going to be going to the anaerobic threshold kind of zone at the for the back end of the race um but it's you know, it's not for me a really significant thing, and so, you know, since I've been coaching the group at Leeds, uh, low-level aerobic training and anaerobic threshold training hasn't been a big focus for me. We do do it, but it's not a focus. Hmm. You know, the focus for me is efficient sprinting, is um, to get better at, at VO2 max, and the threshold work that we do do. You know, to make sure that it's it's very race processed and uh, you know, part of the race process, sorry, and not just up and down mileage. You know, it's pace related. Hmm. You know, so when we know, you know, what kind of pace we need to be going in the last thousand meters of a standard distance, you know, we're working towards that. You know, rather than just endless up and down, up up and for the best mileage. Yeah, and so I guess on a um on a weekly basis, you know, certainly through this competition phase and uh, May through September and, and continuing with some of the athletes now, you know, we, we do one session that is very VO2 max focused. Um, and that's based around 400 meter pace work. And then we have uh, one session where we go through the different energy systems or the different paces. So, you know, we'll, we'll do some sprint work. Uh, we'll also do some VO2 max and we'll also do some threshold within the main set. Um, we also do um, a pure speed and power-based session. Uh, and then the remaining two sessions, one will be an over-distance, long, low, low aerobic mileage session, and one will be absolutely focused on skills and developing skills and diving and, and re-entering and and finishing and you know, all the different things that, that are important. Um, certainly for for the more uh, sprint-focused events that so many of the athletes are doing these days. Yeah, no, that's, that's really great uh, to get that sort of uh, example of a, of a weak structure. Um, do you mind sharing an example of what a VO2 session might look like and a sprint session uh, that you yeah. mentioned because they're really interesting? Yeah, teams. absolutely, yeah. So so with the VO2 max, I mean, you know, when, when we're not racing, when we're two or three weeks away from racing, um, I think we can, we can get a good between 1,500 and 2,000 meters worth of VO2 max. 
for for the coaches that work on heart rate, we'd be looking at between fifteen and five beats below max um, on the on the qual- on the on the actual fast swimming. Um, for those that focus on perceived effort, we'd be looking at nine out of ten effort or nine and a half out of ten effort. Um, and, and obviously there'll be coaches out there that are far more scientific than me that, that work on step test results and work on lactates and, and that type of thing. But certainly certainly I, I don't do that. Um, but a set might be something like uh, something simple like 24 100s on 140, uh, going three hard, one recovery. Yep. You know, that type of set. Or you know something like three uh, fifties, two one hundreds, one one fifty. You know that type of thing. We're trying to maintain pace. Yeah. Um, and so for that type of thing. So so I'm 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 aiming for round about two thousand meters of of VO two max speed work, hard training. Um, um, trying to maintain that type of heart rate, that type of speed, that type of intensity. Um, but there's a, there's a there's a million ways you can you can develop yep. those sets. But there's just a couple of typical sets yep. that we might do. Yeah, when you say there, for example, the hundreds on on one forty, I mean that that gives an indication of a work to rest ratio, or maybe yeah. a kind of. Um, three work to two rest or so uh yeah something something in that region uh, just to give the listeners an idea of how they can scale that to their own own speed i mean certainly with work rest ratios i mean it's i found it's been slightly different uh since i've come across the triathlon but but when i was a just purely swimming coach um you know my mindset was always with on hundreds we're talking about on hundreds here uh that aerobic training or, or um sorry, anaerobic threshold training would be work rest of one to a half. You know, mm-hmm. so if the athletes were coming in on 60 seconds, then I'd set them off on 130, that type of thing. And we was aiming for about 3,000 metres worth of, of work. Mm-hmm. Um, on the VO2 max training, it would be a one-to-one work rest ratio. Um, and we'd go up to about 2,000 metres worth of work. And then for the basic anaerobic training, um, it would be a thousand meters of work, and it would be work rest uh, one to two or one to three, depending on where we were in the season. But so, so I came across triathlon having used that kind of work rest formula for twenty odd years, and and the athletes were absolutely just not ready for long rest. You know the you know when I first started talking about work rest one to one on VO two max, they <laughs> they do the swim and they was kind of stood around looking at me, getting cold, getting fed up, starting losing interest in the set because they're just not used to a minute's rest in between each one hundred, <laughs> and so I quickly started adjusting the sets to give them sort of less rest. So so rather than rather than going on two minutes or two twenty, which would be a, probably a traditional kind of VO two max set within the swimming world. You know, we're, we're probably doing more off kind of 130 and 140. Um, but I, I don't have a problem with that as long as the, the heart rate's in the right zone and as long as the perceived effort's in the right place. 
then I'm fine with that. Yeah, I, I have no experience in coaching swimmers, but uh, there is that old adage of uh, what does a swimmer do when the coach uh, coach looks away and and it's they they go and hide and yeah. and, and skip something. And but what does a triathlete do when the coach looks away? They they do some extra work. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> I must admit that that that's been a real welcome uh, change for me um, because as a as a coach. I think most of my success has come in the kind of middle distance and long distance events over the years. And um, and a, a real thing within swimming, because you're doing 10, 10 sessions a week and you're doing so much mileage, you know, it becomes boring, it becomes difficult. And, and, a, and a big part of, of your skills as a coach is to be able to motivate the swimmers to be able to do it and to be able to work hard, you know, when they maybe have already done 60,000 metres that week you know yep. and um whereas i found the absolute opposite when i came to to triathlon you know that i'm trying to slow the damn athletes down <laughs> just stop and shut up and listen <laughs> because they just want to be off they're just oh wow jess learmonth you know whenever whenever you know she she literally as soon as the, the half past seven comes she's just non-stop and just trying to get a word in just five seconds at some point is very very difficult <laughs> but it's a fantastic problem to have yeah yeah uh what about this print session if you can give an example of, of that yeah yeah um so i think one of the things that i found was that when i asked the the, the athletes to sprint they just automatically went to the, um, a really fast revving stroke and um and it really wasn't efficient. And and obviously from my swimming days, I know that most world-class 50-meter freestyle guys, you know, they're in the kind of 55, 50 to 55, maybe up to 60 if you're really pushing it on the stroke rate per minute. And, uh, and some of the triathletes, when they were going off and they were sprinting, they were at 65 and 70. And uh, and there was just no efficiency there, and, and there was actually no speed there. They didn't actually go any faster, and so and so. What I found that by slowing down the stroke rate to the fifties in this in, with using the tempo trainers, they actually went faster over a twenty-five. And so we might do sets like five uh, fifties, um, first one sprint to fifteen, second one sprint to twenty third one sprint to 25, fourth one recovery, fifth one full 50 from a dive. Mm. And maybe repeat that a number of times through. You know, so, so we're really working the lactic, lactic system on the shorter distances and making sure that, it's, that the, the athletes are powerful and really that their strokes are efficient and they're not just spinning. But then also tapping slightly into the anaerobic system when you're doing some 50s. Yeah, and and certainly as we're coming out of the the competition season, and we're going to be going into the to the general training phase, I'm going to be introducing more of those kind of sets so that we can get some speed, you know, yep. before we go into the, the big mileage of of uh, proper winter training. Yeah, uh, you mentioned a couple of uh, things regarding. Well, you mentioned using 400 meter. Uh, pace or speed yeah. as, as kind of a benchmark for vo2 work yeah. you also mentioned not really using uh, lactate tests can you talk a bit about what tests you are and are not using in in swimming yeah well it's interesting because you know as a as a young coach i probably did what what most young coaches do and study all the books and and um 
become very, very uh, interested in all the technical stuff. And so I, I went through a number of years of, of testing everything. If it moved, I tested it, you know. So it was – I did lactate testing. I did heart rate testing. I did step tests all the time. I did all sorts of junk testing. And I, I did loads of testing in the early 2000s. And the honest truth, Michael, I'm not sure we, we moved forward with that. I'm not sure we got anything from it. I can't, I can't look at that period of time of doing all that testing and think, actually, my knowledge as a coach has, has really developed and the athletes really, really benefited from it. And uh, a story I like to tell is um, in, in the swimming world, one of the most successful swimming coaches is a guy called Eddie Reese, And he's the swimming coach at the University of Texas in Austin. And, he, you know, he's coached, you know, over 40 Olympic medalists in swimming, and which is, so he's by far the most successful coach that, we, you know, there is in our sport. And, um, and so in the mid-2000s, I went to visit him with one of my athletes in the lead-up to uh, Beijing Olympics. And I spent a few weeks there with him. And on the first session... I turned up and I had the had a, a lactate analyzer in one pocket. I had a heart rate monitor in the other pocket. I had a load of stopper watches around my neck. I had you know a piece of paper and a pen, and I'm stood there, you know, like like captain coach. And um, and Eddie just looked at me and goes, "Wow," he said, "When are you going to do any coaching?" <laughs> and it really, it, it just knocked me flat, you know, because I'd spent three or four years developing all these techniques of testing everything. And, and Eddie does none of that at all. And he's the most successful coach in the world ever. Hmm. And I learned a real lot from that, you know, that, that, um, you know, he's, de- he's devised where, you know, he just uses his eyes. He uses his experience. He uses his gut instinct you know, looks at the athletes and sees how hard they're working and uses traditional methods like stroke counting. Um, and so when I came back, you know, I spent, I really revised the way I was coaching and did a lot less testing and used my gut instincts and it was more dynamic. And so it's kind of one of those things where I do occasionally use testing. I think it's, it's interesting for the athletes it maybe gives us a good idea of where we're at in terms of their their energy systems. So, for example, if I have a, period, a, a mesocycle where I'm really wanting to improve the lactate production, the easiest way to make sure that I'm developing lactate production is to do lactate testing. You know, so I'll occasionally do that, but I won't use it all the time. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I'll maybe only use it for three weeks, two or three times a year. Um. You know, there's situations, for example, where I feel that as the athletes are getting faster and doing faster and faster sets, that perhaps we're losing some distance per stroke. So I might do some stroke counting sets, you know, where an example of that might be something like um, 1050s, where we're going 450s at low aerobic pace just counting strokes and trying to reduce that stroke count to the optimum level. And then slowly then for the remaining six fifties, increase the pace by one second per 50, but trying to maintain the distance per stroke, you know, that type of thing. So I, I would, so I would prefer to do test sets like that rather than physiological testing. 
Yeah. Um, but we do do some physiological testing. We do the five four hundred step test. We occasionally do lactate testing. We've got the polar teams system there, so we can do heart rate uh, testing whenever we want to. But I would say that you know, again, the majority of the time, um, would would using I'm using the, the sets and the rest intervals um, to control the athletes. Uh, output rather than use any uh, results from test sets what do you measure in the five by 400 step test that you mentioned is is it lactate or vo2 or just uh paces yeah so so yeah so the the five time times are recorded the lactates recorded the heart rates recorded um and that's graphed mm, okay and so and so from from the the graph you can extrapolate it up to sprint speed but you can just find the points on the graph that you feel that are that are relative to the speed that you're trying to get. Um, for, for you mentioned earlier on about the 400 meter pace, um, and and in the last sort of 10 15 years of my swimming coaching, most of the athletes that I was that were successful that were Olympic level athletes were, were 400 meter, two four and 800 meter athletes, and I found that there was a really accurate correlation between 400 meter pace and vo2 max pace mm. and so you know i so if my if, if you've got a an athlete that's tagging four minutes which would be a good a good male triathlete perhaps um you know that generally speaking given a, a the relevant work rest ratio that they should be going hitting 60 seconds per hundred yeah and what i've noticed when i've done that that's round about 10 beats below max and when i've t- taken lactates it's in the it's in what you'd imagine the vo2 max range to be and so i think it, you know you can use that as a real um simplistic way to get vo2 max to know that you're in the right vo2 max range yeah and um and so you know I, I, that's something that i've used for many years that, that seems to be successful would you say that for amateur triathletes that might be in the sort of well for the really fast ones maybe one one fifteen per one hundred for so let's say five minutes for four hundred but all the way up to mm. even eight eight minutes or slower for four hundred well I guess mm. if you're slower than eight minutes then maybe it's more of a technical technical thing mm. but but I would say so yeah. but it's very it's very normal for for a lot of amateur triathletes to be in the let's say five minutes to seven minutes for four hundred. Yeah. Uh, would you then say that okay, the correlation to the VO two max pace might be more so based on time rather than distance? So it might be three hundred fifty meters or even three hundred meters to get to that sort of roughly four four minutes, perhaps that you find with the with the fast swimmers for the four hundred. Well, I mean, maybe, um, but what I would say is that certainly in the preseason and early season phases, when we're we're a long way away from competing, to me, it's all about the physiological stimulus. You know, as opposed to any kind of pacing, if mm. you understand what I mean. So, yeah. so as long as that athlete is, you know, in that kind of nine out of ten effort, you know, that the feel that they could just get a little bit faster if they wanted to, you know, maybe a second or two faster per hundred on a one-off last hundred, you know, and so, so say for example, that athlete is is a, a five-minute target rather than a four-minute target. You know, for me, if they're going one fifteens per hundred, and it feels like a nine or a nine and a ten, nine nine and a half out of ten effort, 
and the heart rate is in the kind of 10 beats below max kind of range, then it's obviously accurate for them, isn't it? But what I would say is if they're hitting that 115 and those other parameters are not in place, you know, either it's too hard for them or it's too easy for them, then I would just focus on the heart rate and I would just focus on the the perceived effort rather than the time itself. But certainly with once the athletes get to a certain competency and efficiency, then I would say that it that it's a good correlation. Mm. Certainly, the lead up to certainly lead up to races. That that's a very good point. That that correlation that you have found probably you would imagine might break down at slower levels and not even yeah. like anything like kind of below like really uh, really top class potentially yeah. because of uh, a lower efficiency simply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and certainly, and certainly in terms of. Um, you know, if you've got a big group of athletes and, you know, you're not able to, to do the the physiological testing, I think, you know, which was the situation for most swimming coaches in the swimming world. You know, there's very often I would have, I would have 30 athletes I'm working with on my own. And so there's very there's no chance that I can do monitor heart rates and lactates and that type of thing. So I had to find ways that perhaps maybe sounds a little bit crude, you know, but, but find ways that we could uh, approximate those things and certainly working on 400 meter target pace working at nine out of ten effort working at 10 beats below max you know was 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 quite a good um tool that got you in the ballpark yeah yeah um i want to ask you about what swim toys and tools uh, that or a swim aids that you uh like using with triathletes specifically and, and why you like using them? And, and also are there some that you don't like so much that you, that you yeah, don't generally yeah. use? Yeah, well, we really like the rubber duck. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist it. Um, no, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a real lot of it's just the standard stuff that I think that everybody uses, you know. So we use uh, pull boys, but I, I make sure whenever we use pull boys that we also use a band, you know, to make sure that the, the, the feet, the legs are actually rotating along the same longitudinal axis that the that the whole body is, you know. Because quite a lot of the time when we do pull work, if you don't put a band on, then your feet can stay flat, and 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 so you, I think you're you're sometimes missing out on that on that important sort of longitudinal rotation that we need. So so we do pull by band. We use uh, big hand paddles to increase to increase power. We use finger paddles to increase the, the you know the to, to, to feel the the tilt at the front of the stroke, you know, to get the, the wrist tilt and to get the elbow up. Um we use we use sponges again to, to, to create drag and, and and for for power strength development. We also use snorkels so that we take out the uh, need to breathe so we can the athletes can just really focus on stroke technique. You know, because quite often if you look at the hand path, most athletes can swim re- relatively well with good um, biomechanics when there's no breathing involved. But as soon as the, the head turns to the side, all sorts of strange things happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that they're, they're actually using their arms to counterbalance that movement rather than using the hand path as a, as a propulsive measure, right? Yeah. You know, so, so we use snorkels uh, on a regular basis to make sure that we can counteract that 
Um, we use tennis balls um, so that the the athletes hold the tennis balls in the hand and, and rotate the ball forwards in order to to really focus on getting the the, the tilt of the wrist and the high elbow. Um, we also use stretch cords, you know, so you know swimming against the cord and swimming with the cord, you know, to again to develop strength and to develop over speed and to be able to feel what it feels like to swim at race pace but without having to put the effort in and uh, we use tempo trainers you know the finished tempo trainers to, mm-hmm. to be able to to really focus on on, on getting the, the stroke rate right and so that we're not overrating or underrating depending on what the aim of the set is so generally speaking it, it's it's the, a lot of standard stuff that I think most people use with the you know we just add in snorkels tennis balls tempo trainers cards, yeah. that type of thing which perhaps maybe wouldn't be in the arsenal of, of a lot of triathletes but um, and I think it just mixes things up and, and gives the athletes something something to think about, as well as the, you know, the physical ch- um, progressions that you can get from using those tools as well. Yeah. Do you use fins at all? I don't think you mentioned. That. Yeah, we did. I didn't mention fins, did I? And and that's probably the one we use the most. <laughs> yeah, we we use uh, we use fins quite a lot. I, I like to uh, do we, when we do a lot of stroke drills. I like to use fins for it because I want the stroke drills to to be done right. You know, because I think uh, that was one of the things I noticed when I came in to start working with the group that they all had um, a toolkit of drills that they used, but perhaps they weren't. They were just doing the drills because that's what they always did, and that they wasn't actually doing the drills right. And and a real lot of swimming drills require a leg kick to be able to do the drills right. And half of the triathletes haven't got a leg kick or haven't got an effective leg kick. And so and so by using fins, it gives you that little bit of propulsion and extra buoyancy, a little bit like stabilizers on a on a bicycle when kids are first learning. And so we use it for skills and drills. But also we use fins for um when I'm trying to get a little bit of over speed. You know, again, you know, if I'm I'm trying to get an athlete to be able to to hold great technique at, at sprint speeds, you know, um, it's good to be able to use the fins to get that extra 20 or 30% of, of speed um, and to be able to really hold good form at sprint speeds. Yeah. And so that's kind of what we use fins for, really for drills and skills, but also for over speed, for lactic sprinting. We use mm. fins quite a lot for that. And uh, speaking of the kick, do you, how much do you work on the kick, and and how how do you do that? <laughs> well, it's a tricky one at Leeds because um, two or three of our key athletes hate kicking. <laughs> so 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 it's I've got a constant battle between those that like to kick and those that don't like to kick. <laughs> and so um, I think uh, you know we don't do a huge amount of kick. I would say that most. Most days we probably do in the region of five to eight hundred meters worth of kick in in the form of drills and in the form of of a sprint kicking and recovery kicking and that type of thing. So I, I don't think we do a huge amount of kick. You know, maybe two or three thousand meters a week, um, but we do enough to to make it relevant, and we do it enough so that it's a tool in their toolkit to be able to use as and when they need it. Yeah, it's generally 
uh, with with a kickboard, uh, just standard kicking, or do you have any? any no, other? no, we do quite a lot. Of, we mix things up. We do we do uh, quite a lot of dolphin kicking, um, and we do you know side kicking a real lot of side kicking, and we do a lot of flat kicking. And we do a lot of deep kicking. You know, the, the way down underneath the water. So we kind of mix it up. I would say that probably we do twenty percent of all the different kicking methods. So maybe twenty okay. percent kickboard. 20% fly kicking, 20% side kicking, 20% rotating. You know, we kind of mix it all up, really. Yeah, right. Uh, then I think that we have we have maybe alluded to a couple of these already, but I, just from your perspective now, having been at Leeds for uh, a year and a bit, uh, have you seen any sort of common mistakes uh, among triathletes? that you kind of want to point out so that our listeners can avoid making making these kinds of mistakes yeah i mean i think i think generally again you know i've I've got to hold my hand up and say you know i am hugely experienced when it comes to triathlon coaching you know i've only been to a few events and and i've only been around for a few months so i'm not going to pretend that i've got all the answers but um but i do feel there's a a real mindset of general mileage and threshold that I think is unnecessary and and I think is probably not relevant to a real lot of athletes. And um, of course, there are going to be some athletes that it is relevant to. I would say that, you know, athletes like Jess Leamont that has got a really efficient stroke and has got a, a massive swimming background, you know, she can, she be- really benefits from, from short rest and threshold training. And because there's not a real lot we need to do to change you know, there's some things we've been working on, um, but you know, she could do threshold till the cows come home, and, and and she'll be good with that, and that's not a problem. Whereas there's other athletes in the pool that that their stroke is not developed enough to be able to do lots and lots of mileage and lots and lots of of threshold. And my viewpoint is, you know, that it's that old saying, isn't it, that you get very good at whatever you practice most of. And so if you're practicing something poorly with poor skills, you'll get very good at doing that, you know, and which is what we don't want that to be, of course. And so, and so, you know, what I would say for, for triathletes out there that are, you know, maybe just embarking on the journey, don't just think about mileage and threshold, you know, make sure you've got gears, you know, that you can sprint, that you can that you can swim at four hundred meters sort of pace, that you can swim at threshold pace, and that you can also swim efficiently at low aerobic pace. And so, you know, that and and being able to have good skills at low aerobic pace that you then maintain as you go through the speeds rather than losing your technique. Um so yeah, so that's the main thing in terms of 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 training. But and and I would just say, you know, that that rotation and hip rotation and linking the hand exit at the back of the stroke to the hip rotation is a real key skill that I think is very well understood and, and well known within the swimming world but, but I don't hear many people talking about it in the tri world and um, it seems to be very front front of the stroke based rather than back of the, the stroke based and so I would say you know focus on you know relaxing the hand at the front of the stroke and getting the power from the back of the stroke um so they're, they're just two or three things that, that i've noticed uh, along the way hmm. yeah no that's that's all great and and when it comes to sort of making sure that you 
practice things, practice doing things well. Uh, if you are yeah. embarking on the journey, or you you're an amateur triathlete and uh, you have been doing it for a while, but uh, you're by no means a swimmer by background, then what are would you say that like doing a video analysis uh, session every once in a while is a good thing or do you think that maybe joining a squad where there is some on deck surveillance from a coach or what what are some options for these types of athletes that, that are not going to be able to or, or don't have any interest in being at a in a high performance squad like, uh, like yeah, a sure. lead center yeah i mean i think probably a combination of all those things michael to be honest i think um i think you know getting some basic competencies and some basic understanding of of, of how uh, an efficient swimming stroke works, um, and then trying that for a period of time so that you've got a certain level of ability before you start going to the video analysis. Um, because I think it's kind of one of those things where when you're first starting a new skill, it's a whole range of things that you've got to think about, right? And I think you've probably got to get to the point where some of the key things – have become automatic that you don't have to think about them anymore b- before you can then start really really focusing on some of the key things and so i would say that you probably need a certain level of of swimming competency that that's you know brought to you by working with a, a local squad or a, a local swimming coach or, or by talking to the uh the swimming clubs and, and one of the things that that i was really that i've been really surprised by over the years is there's obviously there's, you know, there's a pretty good swimming club in most towns, you know, with with people that really understand swimming, and the links between them and triathlon, in my experience, is very limited, mm. and you know I've always found that a bit peculiar that, you know, that there are swimming experts out there that are very happy to help and very happy to work with people, and that it's not really tapped into, and so that's certainly something that that the Federation are asking me to get involved with is is is, is trying to, to bring the, the two competencies together there a little bit more. Um, yeah. But that would be certainly a bit of advice I would give to, to an up-and-coming you know, triathlete, you know, to try and work within uh, a tri-club or a swimming club to get the basic competencies in place and then start a little bit of video analysis. But But the key things, I think, is... Is, is really focusing on, on distance per stroke in the early days, you know, increasing the length of the stroke rather than increasing the rate of the stroke. And once that distance per stroke is grooved and once it becomes a, a decent competence of, of the athlete, then you can start increasing the stroke rate and, and, and talking about tempo and, and talking about um, speed and... Um, and, and I think if you do things in that order, you've got a, a good chance rather than just going at it hammer and tog right from the start, you know, and, and trying to run before you can walk, you know, so to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you mentioned there with uh, the limited link between local clubs and triathletes is, is very interesting. And I, I kind of have a sense that the reason for that is that a lot of us triathletes have a mentality of uh, our program needs to be perfect there is a perfect program for us and whether we make it ourselves as self-coach athletes or our, our coach our triathlon coach has made a swim program for us a lot of triathletes are reluctant to let go of the control of having a 
a program that you're in control of uh, mm. and go to a swim squad where you don't really know what's going to happen you kind of want yeah. to have it in your schedule already i feel yeah. i feel that that's that's the reason a lot of times but i i do agree i personally swim it with a squad and, and i think that there are so many positives of that uh that uh, it's yeah it's definitely something that is worth at least at least trying at the same time the other problem there you mentioned with um yeah going starting smashing yourself too early before you have mm. uh, the efficiency depending on the squad you go to that might actually happen in, mm. in, so so you need to find like a good good squad and a good level for you uh so, yeah, so it, it's not it's not always easy but no i understand that and i think but i think also you know that the, the fault is also with the swimming community just as much as the tri community you know i think we can be a little bit elitist sometimes and it's like you know if you've got a, tr- a squad of swimmers that are doing 10 sessions a week and then you've got a a triathlete that comes in and says, "Oh, can I join in a couple of sessions a week?" and and they turn up with a wetsuit and <laughs> and that type of thing. You know, I think you know, as swimming coaches, we can get a little bit snobby at times. I know I certainly was when I was a swimming coach. I was a little bit, "Oh yeah, I ain't got time for this," you know. Um, but um, but when I'm seeing the other side and I'm I'm seeing, you know, there's a there's a, a saying, you know, it's low hanging fruit, you yep. know. And for me, that's very much that you know that there are so many improvements that 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 can easily easily be made for triathletes um that the, these are things that i think we we can address and but I, I think for me the key thing the key thing is to to really focus on efficiency of stroke stroke counting and then when that becomes grooved and you feel like you you know you you've got a certain level of competence then you can start introducing rates and you can start introducing uh, the different gears, you know, going up to threshold pace and going up to VO2 max pace and sprinting and that type of thing. But I think if you go to those higher, higher speed um, zones too early, it's just going to be a mess. Mm. You know, it's just it's just going to be messy. Mm. You know, and, and uh, um, you know, so I would really focus on those things. Speaking of turning up in a wetsuit, how much have you? been doing open water swimming with the squad or is that something that the athletes kind of work into their program a bit on as a fun thing on the side when they when they're not racing is it very pool focused or or do you have dedicated open water sessions yeah so we have two two dedicated open water sessions a week through the summer and we, we actually go to a lake a, a boating lake and um one of those sessions we we make it very kind of long um over distance kind of swimming so that they're just it's just an acclimatization thing and just just getting five or six thousand meters in in a in a in a, in a glorified duck pond really <laughs> um and you know just just doing that and then the second session of the um of the week we make it quite race specific you know so we do you know uh, diving off the, uh, the pontoon you know re-entries exits we do sprinting, you know. We do threshold sets. We do VO two max sets. We do um, drafting, and and you know, I introduce a, a a a term called a disruptor. You know, so in every in every group of say four or five athletes that go off, I appoint one of them as a secret disruptor whose job it is just to make everybody else's life hard. Mm. You know, so you know, banging into them and rolling over them and chopping them through and and getting in the way and doing, you know, just being a pain in the ass basically. And, um, and that seems to be working really well because I think if you look at pretty much every, uh, 
certainly standard distance and above triathlons, it just seems to be, uh, you know, that the, you have a number of athletes that are very good at that and and uh, the athletes that are trying to make progress and, and trying to actually get on front pack need to be able to learn to deal with that stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, uh, so, so we do that twice a week. And then during the summer and then during the winter. So we've just stopped that now because the, the water temperature in Britain is dropped below kind of 20. It's more like sort of 14, 15 now. And so, um, and we just try and keep some of those skills that we did in the open water relevant by, by doing it in the pool, you know, so regular wetsuits in the pool, um, drafting work, sighting work, that type of thing. Um, but certainly, but certainly in the summer, we have two dedicated uh, open water sessions. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then uh, one topic that I wanted to ask you about as well that uh, I heard uh, on, an, on another podcast uh, that I'll, I'll can link to in the show notes for listeners who want to hear more. Uh, it was the Athlete Welfare Podcast. You discussed, well, both athlete welfare, but also coach welfare and uh, the topics of burnout or chronic fatigue. Mm. Uh, so c- could you give some some thoughts on, on those topics? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's... it's um it's a massive thing, isn't it? And I think for for many years, I think we just kind of dabbled around the the sides of it and didn't really understand it or or didn't have the skills to be able to to, to tackle it. Um, but you know, when I when I think back to the last twenty twenty odd years of elite coaching in swimming that I've done, and I think about the amount the amount of coaches that that have had to varying degrees. Um, serious problems, you know, mental health problems, um, and you know, we've even had we've even had people that have taken their lives. We've had people with alcoholism. We've had people with mental breakdowns. We've had people with chronic fatigue, and I'm certainly one of those people. And um, and I think we're starting to address it better now, aren't we? I think in this last sort of two or three years. Uh, we are we are making more of a focus on it, and I think it's becoming less stigmatized, and I think people are prepared to talk about it more. But I think as a as an overriding thing, you know, we need to make sure that we are looking after ourselves as coaches in a world class way, in the same way that we look after our athletes in a world class way. Because if you actually think about it, most of us coaches that work with athletes are very very good at giving advice and making sure that our athletes are recovering properly and eating properly and sleeping properly and are, and are developing the correct mental narratives to be able to stay healthy um, in the thoughts. But how many of us actually do that ourselves and how many of us are strict with ourselves and when it comes to sleep, recovery, mental narrative, nutrition, all those sort of things. I can tell you right now that I'm nowhere near as competent at looking after myself as I am as competent looking after the world-class athletes that I look after. And I think, you know, we've all got to strive to get that balance as equal as possible. And I think the people that do get that balance end up being the ones that are the most successful and end up being the ones that have got longevity in the sport. And... um you know, so and and I don't think there's any excuse now to say that we don't know. You know, because 
you know, it's so easy now. Um, I mean, when I first started coaching, Michael, it was long before the internet, you know, was 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 around. And so, you know, the only way that you could find things out would be to actually make an effort to hire somebody or to go to the library and study books. Whereas now, you know, with a few clicks on the internet, you can find out about all of these things very, very easily. You know, so we know now that sleep tends to work in one and a half hour cycles. You know, this is scientific stuff. And so we know that for most, you know, people, we need a minimum of five one and a half hour cycles in the sleep, in our, in our sleep, a minimum. You know, and, you know, we know how the brain works now. We know about um, how the different parts of the brain relate to each other and how mental narrative can control a real lot of how we feel and the hormones that are released on a day-to-day basis. And so I think that the information's out there and I think we really need to take it seriously. First and foremost, to make sure that our athletes are, are being looked after properly and coached in a world-class way. And I would just say 50% of my job is, is about you know, 10 100s this and 20 50s that, you know, and the other 50% of it is this stuff that I'm talking about here, hmm. you know, making sure that, you know, that the, the primal things that make us healthy and happy are addressed. And we are awful, Michael, at looking after ourselves as coaches, awful. And, um, you know, if we were advising ourselves as if we was coaching ourselves, you know, we'd be a hell of a lot healthier and a hell of a lot happier and a hell of a lot fitter if we if we did the same good job with ourselves as we did with our athletes. And and that's the kind of the you know I feel really strongly about that having mm. having seen the other side of it, you know, and having been very ill myself, you know, previously. Um, and learn what I needed to do to, to become healthy again and to to maintain my health and happiness. You know. And I don't think any of it's rocket science. You know, it's it's, that's, it's simple that's, stuff. Yeah, that's that's a good good thing. Uh silver lining, I guess that yeah, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, I was gonna ask you about is this all about just coaches becoming aware of it and uh, taking uh, I guess taking action on their own, or is there also an onus on, for example, federations uh, that are uh, employing coaches to to do do something uh, to raise awareness, or uh, I guess set up work conditions that are uh, that are conducive for uh, for longevity and and good mental health. I, I think both. I, I do. I do think that as employers, you know, we've all got responsibilities for the people we employ, without a doubt. Um, but ultimately. You know, we've all got individual needs, haven't we? And, you know, I mentioned to you earlier that, you know, one of my colleagues, one of my best friends a number of years ago ended up taking his own life. And um, none of us knew, you know, none of us knew that it was, you know, that he was in that state, you know, so so it's kind of one of those things where, no amount of federation uh, intervention would have saved him. You know, what, what, what needed to happen, you know, was long, long before that, you know, was, was for him to be able to, 
to address the problems long before it got to that point, you know. And and so I do feel it's a combination of both. I think we do need to be educated in terms of of supporting each other and having environments of trust and support and you know good positive relationships but also we need to educate ourselves and ultimately take responsibility for our own health and 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 well-being and um i mean a really good example and i absolutely love this one of the cpds that i did with british swimming a number of years ago they brought in a disaster management um expert you know so when say there's a, an earthquake in or or a major disaster there are people that are actually employed to bring a team together and and go out there and deal with it you know hunt for bodies and and support the communities and that type of thing and uh, and he said you know you can imagine when you're in that situation where you're trying to save people's lives that you can push yourself and push yourself and push yourself and push yourself because you're working on real primal things going on in your head you can push yourself much harder and you become much more tired than you would in a normal day-to-day you know work or job and people would become so tired and so exhausted that they started making bad decisions and dangerous decisions and so they developed a system where if one of your colleagues that you was working alongside of came up to you and put their hand on your shoulder and said, you need to take a break, you need to go and eat, you need to go and sleep. It was a disciplinary offence to say no. Mm. So if someone recognised that in yourself, in you, that you were exhausted, but you wanted to keep going because that's human nature, uh, in those heightened emotional situations, you you weren't you weren't allowed to say no. You had to stop and you had to take a break. And you put that trust in your colleagues to know what was best for you. And obviously, you know, in in the in our world of of working in sport, it's not life and death like that. But it's still very very emotive. And you know when a I can tell you when an athlete comes up to me and says, Russ, I want to win an Olympic medal. Will you help me? That's a hugely emotive thing that makes me push myself a hell of a lot harder than I would way beyond the comfort zone and way beyond probably what's healthy for me. And so I think we need to perhaps have a system among the people that we work with and our elite athletes where we trust each other enough to say, take 48 hours off. You know, you need to replenish the tank. You need to decompress. You're no good to anybody in this state. And you're no good good to anyone dead if you have an heart attack, right? (laughs) So I think we need to be able to do that as coaches, you know, to to, to be really aware of each other and to be able to look after each other's well-being in the same way that we have no problem doing that with our athletes. Yeah. Yeah, those are all really, really excellent points and uh, wise, wise words. And uh, obviously, sorry for uh, what you went through with the, the chronic fatigue and the loss of your friend. Um, no, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. Um, with, with regard to uh, the athlete side of the coin, the athlete welfare, 
other than the things already mentioned is there anything what is there anything in addition to to the things you already mentioned about uh, making sure that they sleep well eat well and so mm. on that as a coach you feel that uh, this is this is something that is my responsibility as a coach to help help the athlete will re- with regarding their welfare yeah i do and i think you know because a lot of the people that we work with are students and so they're away from the family and um you know, maybe only see the family two or three times a year. And the family is normally the people that would be there to um, put an arm around the shoulder occasionally and and, and give good advice and, and be able to help them with difficult situations. And so I think although there needs to be a, a line, um, a line, you know, between the familiarity that we have with the athletes as, as, as coaches, obviously, um, I do think that I I see my role not just as a sports coach, but also to to try and give advice and support um, as and when needed. And so I think I think being the kind of coach that the athletes know that you have always got time for them to talk to them and to give advice and support as and when they need it, I think is an important part of the role but I think obviously you've got to be careful with that as a coach to make sure that you don't get so dragged into it all that you know it becomes a real a real burdensome sort of problem but I think it's just getting being available to talk to athletes um and I think you know one of the things that I found particularly with triathlon is that you know recovery um both emotional and physical um, is something that we really need to address, particularly as the athlete the, the athletes get older. Um, you know, we, we need to make sure that that recovery is talked about as often as training hard, and how the recovery skills can be really addressed. Um, you know, to make sure we're minimising injury, and to make sure that we can really get quality out of the sessions that we need. Um, I also think that that elite athletes are terrible at accepting praise. And so I think it's something that we need to teach them, you know, and we need to do um, as coaches, you know, to make sure that they can see when they've done a good job and they can feel the positive endorphin release of perceiving that they're doing a good set and training well and racing well, as well as just being clinically analytical you know, this could be better, this could be better, this could be better. But I think it's really important that we also address what they're doing very, very well also, you know. And I think we all probably assume that we're doing that. But if you actually analyse it, I think a lot of the time we'll find ourselves with the constructive criticism rather than the, the, the praise. And I think that's a, a really important thing. And, the, and then the, the only other thing I would just say is that I think the challenge that we give the athletes needs to be progressive and you know it needs to be, we need to make sure that you know we've all got our long-term aspirations of course we do um, but not rush to the, towards those things and the longer longer we can take just putting those layers upon layers upon layers of skill and tactical awareness and um, and training ability and and recovery competency and all those type of things, you know, just layer upon layer, one step at a time. And, you know, so it's a progressive challenge rather than 
you know, like most of us, we have a big, a, a big aspirational goal and we go at it so hard, so quickly. We end up getting injured. We end up getting demotivated and uh, it all kind of goes wrong. So I think that they're, they're, they're really important things, I think, when it comes to the athlete welfare um, kind of discussion. Hmm. Again, really excellent points. Uh, really appreciate uh, you discussing that topic. I only have a couple more questions uh, to finish off before, well, the, the rapid fire questions, but two more before that. And the first one uh, that I want to ask you is uh, just what would you tell yourself from 10 years ago as a coach if you could go back in time? Do you know what? I, that, <laughs> I think that's the hardest question. <laughs> I think that's a really, really horrible question, Michael. <laughs> um, um, but I think probably um, the the mental narrative uh, thing that we're talking about. I think you know because I think I was so very task focused and um, ten years ago I genuinely felt I was indestructible. You know, charging around the world, going to all the major meets, and you know, living out of a suitcase and you know, living on junk food and, you know, you kind of just think you're indestructible. And uh, now I'm now I'm 50, or nearly 50 years of age and things are starting to ache <laughs> and things are starting to break and things are starting to go wrong. Um, you know, I think probably what I should have done 10 years ago, if I could talk to a 40-year-old self, would be look after yourself better, mm. understand the men- the mental narrative thing and um you know focus on a more recovery and and uh, decompression style of of coaching rather than just constantly pushing 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 push and i think that that would've been better for my athletes i think it would be better for me and ultimately it would have meant that that um uh, it means that you've got more longevity in the sport right yeah. you know because uh We're no good to anybody dead. (laughs) Well, uh, you're still young, so uh, just I don't feel it, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you anyway. Just take, yeah, just just keep taking care of yourself now that you have that awareness, and uh, you'll have plenty of longevity. Yeah, take a few more uh, omega three tablets and vitamin D tablets, right? (laughs) Yeah, and and a couple of those forty eight hours off, and that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What's what's one thing uh, within within coaching triathlon or swimming that you are currently learning about or fascinated by, and why? I think it's probably the balance between between uh, between hard work and recovery. I think, um, and and being able to you know know how long to push for. You know, one of the discussions. That I that I or one of the places I got to as a swimming coach was I avoided the the mesocycle approach of perhaps three hard weeks, one recovery week, or four hard weeks, one week, you know that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I and I got to a point where I did recovery weeks on need and pushed longer before we we did recovery weeks. But I think I was in a situation there where I was working with some great athletes that really knew the bodies that I'd been coaching for a lot of years. I mean, for example, one of the the double Olympians that I coached, a girl called Ellie Faulkner, went to London Olympics and Rio Olympics. 
you know, Commonwealth medalist, great swimmer. And uh, and I coached her from the age of eight. You know, she, she mm. came from swimming lessons in 2002, and I coached her right through to 2018. So I coached her for 16, 17 years. And so I knew her well enough to be able to do that recovery on need approach, you know, um, whereas some of the other athletes that perhaps I didn't know that well and perhaps maybe weren't as uh, reflective in their own training to give you good feedback as to where they were at, you know, in terms of fatigue. So I think that whole that whole model of three and one or two and one or two and one, one or five and two or whatever it is that you want to look at, I'm really intrigued by that right now. And um, I haven't got any answers, Michael, I'm afraid. Um, but one thing one thing I, I do know is that I think it needs to be looked at. And I think, uh, you know, if you were to look at the needs of a Vicky Holland in the mid-30s and look at the needs of, you know, uh, an athlete that maybe in their early 20s, they're really going to need the same planning and the same you know, mesocycles and macrocycles and microcycles and that type of thing. And so I think it's being able to individualize that and get it right. And that's, that's what's really, I'm really kind of enjoying that, that, mm. um, that challenge right now. Yeah, no, that is a very, very fascinating topic. Absolutely. Um, and let me know when you have the answers because I'm <laughs> curious to hear about Mate, that. That one's going to be a book. I'll make, <laughs> I'll make a little bit of money out of that one if I find an answer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's finish up with uh, the rapid-fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each, each of these. And the first one is, uh, well, what is your favorite book or resource? Oh, mate, my, my favorite book is a, an old one by Doc Councilman, who was – Doc Councilman was the, the swimming coach at Indiana University in the 50s and 60s and 70s in America. And he was uh, Mark Spitz's coach, uh, which was the kind of Michael Phelps of the of the 70s, right? And um, but he moved the spot on massively with with the, with his his coaching and his his studying and his um, just everything about the guy was fantastic. And he wrote a book in 1968 called The Science of Swimming, and then updated it in 1977. Uh, and it's the uh, Competitive Swimming Manual for Swimmers and Coaches. And those two books for me, whether whenever I'm lost. Whenever I kind of am, am, am scrabbling for ideas, he just puts me straight again. He's, he's just he's just got it right, and so yeah. so that, that that's the one that I would uh, you know. I, I think the 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 advice on front crawl uh, in there is is still relevant. I think for swimming coaches, probably you know the backstroke, breaststroke, maybe the butterfly, maybe isn't quite so relevant. Forty years on, fifty years on. But certainly the front crawl, I don't think anything's changed really from the stuff that Doc was talking about in the 60s and 70s. And mm-hmm. certainly in terms of how we should be as a coach and the culture that we're put, uh, creating with our athletes and the planning stuff and all that type of stuff. Doc had it right in the 60s and 70s and I, I just go back to those books. Fantastic. Great. And uh, what's an important habit that you've benef- benefited from athletically, professionally or personally? Well, again, I think uh, this comes from from uh, Eddie. You know, the Eddie Reese, the, the guy I was talking to you about, um, the, the the coach at the University of Texas. After I spent some time there, 
when I was coming to the end of, of my time there, I asked his advice and I said, you know, Eddie, what do you think I should work on? What can I work on to get better as, as a coach? And he said, Russ, you're a really powerful individual. You've got real strong presence and it can be quite overwhelming and learn to not use that power. And at the time, as a young coach, I mean, I was in my 20s at that point, or my early 30s, certainly. And um, so him saying that to me, um, you know, was a real eye-opener, you know, in terms of um, use it like salt and pepper. Use your your strength as a coach and your power and your... um, influence as a coach really sparingly and work with the athletes to bring the best out of themselves so they're more self-driven rather than me being the big guy at the front of the of the ship charging everybody on like a Viking warrior, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I think that that was probably one of the best bits of advice I got and I, I certainly changed my coaching approach to be much more uh, integral with the athlete rather than me just being a leader. Hmm. And uh, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Oh, wow. Again, that's a really tricky one. I mean, in, this, in the short time I've been in triathlon, I've, I've worked really closely with Ben Bright, who's uh, obviously was the, the GB uh, Olympic head coach for Tokyo. And, and I, I really enjoyed working with him in the lead up to Tokyo and, and really looked up to him and respected him in, in that role, learned a real lot from him. And so, in the, and, and also over the years, I've got to know Robin Brew really well. Who obviously is still involved, um, but you know, he was one of the very first triathlete, elite triathletes that I knew. You know, twenty, twenty-five, maybe even thirty years ago. And you know, he's got on to coach uh, a good level, and I really look up to him. Certainly within the sport of triathlon, and um, and probably outside of triathlon. Um, the big two names for me are Bill Sweetnam, who was our performance director in Britain up until 2007, and it was just a mind explosion for me working with that guy. And you know, he brought in a, all the kind of coaching methods from all over the world, and just expanded our knowledge massively within Britain. And and to be fair, the success that we're seeing in swimming right now in Britain is probably on the on the back of the stuff that Bill brought in in the early 2000s. And then the, the, the probably the last one would be Terry Dennison, who was my my boss at City of Leeds Swimming Club in the nineties. I learned so much from that guy and, and so much of what I talk about these days, um, about the cultures and the, the mindsets and the behaviours of athletes, I, I certainly learned from Terry back in those days. So they're probably two or three people that that, that I uh, that I really am inspired by and, and look up to right now. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And uh, finally, uh, tell the listeners if they're interested in following you, or do you have any presence on social media or so, uh, Twitter or something like that? Or yeah, I mean, I've, I've got bits and bobs. I I, um, I, I run a my own little um, coaching. Um, it's not so much a podcast, but a, a coaching group called the the Swim Coach Network. Uh, we've got six or seven hundred coaches from around the world that and we do talks for each other and educate each other and that type of thing and so we're, we're, that's on that's on twitter that's on facebook it's on linkedin um 
but if anybody wants to find me, just just type my name in and uh, either put in swimming coach or triathlon coach or whatever, and uh, you'll find me on there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Russ. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, find out all about uh, your views on on swimming. And uh, it's really interesting to hear about this transition into into triathlon uh, triathlon swimming. So, really appreciate it. Thank you. No, no, I really appreciate your time, and and also thank you for 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 all you do as well. Because uh, I've, I'm slowly going through all your back back episodes of uh, of podcasts, you know, and it's really educated me and I'm really enjoying it. So thanks for all you do as well, Michael. All right. Been, well, if you go a real, real privilege, if you go far enough back in the archives, you'll find uh, Malcolm Brown there uh, who you mentioned. Absolutely. And that, yeah. was, that was one of my really early interviews with one of the greats of the sports from, uh, from my perspective. So that, that one is, is worth checking out. Great stuff. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to social media profiles and also some uh, related episodes, including the one that I mentioned with Malcolm Brown, the founder of the Leeds Triathlon Center and longtime coach of the Brownlee Brothers. Uh, also, uh, a recent, more recent episode with uh, British swim coach Ian Armiger uh, that we had on in episode 263 and uh, some other uh, swim-related episodes as well. Marcel Vuda, uh, open water swim coach from the Netherlands and uh, and a link to the archives with all swimming related episodes remember that on scientifictriathlon.com on the podcast episodes page you can filter for different categories so you can see separately all running related episodes swimming cycling strength nutrition and so on and so forth so check out the website if you have a specific topic that you're learning about and another thing that I want to mention is that now as we're approaching that time where we're starting to look towards 2022 and what goals we want to set for it ourselves and, and how we can achieve them, now is as good a time as any, maybe the best time of all, I would say to start working with a good coach that can help support you through that journey and to achieve those goals. And uh, I want to mention that if you are looking for a coach, uh, we pride ourselves on the coaching that we're doing and the dedication and commitment we have to our athlete's success. So if you're in the market for a coach, do check out our coaching page on scientifictriathlon.com. Learn more about how it works, about our coaches, and get in touch. And uh, you can have a chat with, with us and uh, see if it seems like a good fit. All right, and finally, thank you to our sponsor, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take a free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and use their quick carb calculator to get fueling guidelines for racing and training. You can get 15% off your first order with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.